open our hearts and be receptive for your message this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, greetings, everyone. And it's uh, always good to be with you um, and to uh, have this time in the scriptures together. Um, let me begin this morning with a short personal reflection, uh, which will fall broadly, broadly into the category of um, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. And then uh, three contextual reflections um, before we study the text. But uh, let, let's begin by reading the scriptures. Um, um, Louis did a, a wonderful creative job last Sunday uh, with the first paragraph, which takes us through the first nine verses. I'm going to begin reading in verse 10, uh, and I'll go through to the end of the chapter. Okay, Galatians chapter 1, remembering what Louis did last week in 1 to 9. Okay, verse 10. Am I now speaking, seeking human approval or God's approval? Am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a slave of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed to me is not of human origin, nor did I receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that were in Christ. They only heard that it was said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. And the Lord always blesses the public reading of the scriptures. Um, here's my short uh, personal reflection, and as I said, it falls broadly into this category of um, uh, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. Um, as I was preparing over the last couple of weeks, I, I reflected back about the fact that I must admit that I never really fully appreciated this, probably Paul's first letter that he wrote to those churches um, in Galatia. The very first graduate course um, I ever took in theology was, uh, was an advanced exegesis course uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, and um, the, the beauty of that course, although the funny part about it was, is that it was taught by a Messianic Jew. And um, so I, I had this great love for the book of Romans. 
Um, but I could never seem to understand where it fit with Galatians and vice versa. So when I would do my annual reading of the scriptures, I would read as quick as I could through the six chapters of Galatians to check it off my list. But I just didn't get it. There seemed to be so many differences between Galatians and Romans. Now, um, the, the wonderful British um, evangelical F.F. Bruce uh, in his commentary was helpful, but it didn't it didn't solve a lot of my the questions I had. And, and, and I remember reading John Stott's commentary, which it, it, which is a nice commentary, but but it has some strange things in it. And I thought, no, this doesn't doesn't answer my questions. When I was doing those graduate studies, I had to read two books by um, a professor of religion uh, at McMaster Seminary, Master of Divinity School in, in Hamilton. Uh, the man's name is, is Ed Saunders, and he wrote uh, two books on Judaism in Palestine. Not that I fully understood everything he was saying, but the lights began to turn for me on what was going on. And then I, I did reading and study uh, with another uh, Anglican evangelical from Toronto, Richard Longnecker, and things began to fall in place. So that I can say very honestly, Galatians is now one of my favorite books of the New Testament. And uh, I hope you get as much love out of studying it as I have over the years. Okay, um, that's it. Three short uh, contextual reflections. Part of the problem we're going to have in this text this morning is getting the timeline right. Because there's things that Paul says in Galatians 1, 10 to 24, and we want to say, where does that fit in with Paul's conversion? Because he's going to talk about it in Acts 9. Okay, F.F. Um, Bruce is marvelously helpful here. If you've got his book, uh, The Apostle of Grace Set Free, um, I'm, I'm influenced by him, but I've, I've changed some things as I've thought about it over the years. We can generally say that Paul probably went through his conversion on the road to Damascus, probably in 33, um, after the birth of Jesus Christ. But as he says in this passage, right after those events in Damascus, he went to Arabia. He probably came back to, uh, to Damascus in 36, because he says he was gone for three years. And probably the events that he recounts in Acts 9, where he really turned some people off and had to descend the wall of Damascus in a, in a basket, that probably happened after his three years in Arabia. Um, but then, because of how he had literally ticked some people off, the apostles sent him off, and he was gone for, for 10 years, probably from 36 to 46. And it's towards the end of 45-46 that Barnabas went from Antioch to find him. So that's Acts 11. And so when he comes back to Antioch, then he heads down um, to Jerusalem, where he's going to interact with um, Paul. Oh, he's going to interact with uh, Cephas and James and probably the other disciples. And he's going to get his commissioning um, that he now is going to recount in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. 47, he heads off on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And then in 48 and 49, um, which is a little bit in this passage, he's going to return to Antioch. 
He's going to go down to Jerusalem a third time. And that's when the council in Acts 15 takes place. And then he heads off on his second missionary journey, which will include going back to part of Galatia. So getting the timeline right um, is important so that this text makes sense, particularly with Acts. That's my first contextual. Okay. Second, every text has a context. Um, And it's important to to get this one right, in my opinion. When we read this book, you always need to keep in mind that there are three audiences. There's first of all, Jews, born Jews, who decided to follow Jesus. Then there were Greeks, we call them the Hellenists, who became Jews, who then decided to follow Jesus. And then there were Gentiles, often called by Paul, either pagans or barbarians, who just decided to follow Jesus without going through Judaism. And as you read Galatians, you got to keep those three audiences because Paul doesn't say, okay, I'm switching from group one to group two. I'm switching from group one and two to group three. But here's what you need to remember. Jews had a particular status in the Roman Empire. They had a status of an authoritarian or authoritative religion. They didn't have to submit to Caesar. They didn't have to confess Caesar as savior. And so anytime that this third group, pagans and barbarians, who decided to follow Jesus, came into the churches, there was going to be pressure, both internal pressure by the Jews and the Hellenistic Jews for the pagans who decided to follow Jesus to conform because there would be pressure from the state, from the Roman Empire, on that third group. And it's actually in Acts chapter 18 where the proconsul in Corinth says, a follower of Jesus is a follower of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. They're all Jews. They're all under the the status of being part of uh, licit, an an authorized Jewish religion. And all the tensions find themselves right there. Because you can imagine, you're a pagan, you're a Gentile, you decide to follow Jesus without becoming a Jew. You're no more interested in Jewish circumcision and food laws than you are than getting a Roman sword chop off your head. That's not why you decided to become a Christian. But if you're a Jew, you don't want the authorities in your city screaming at you because you've got pagans who are just trying to be protected from the state. It all gets even harder when Augustus becomes the Roman emperor and he declares himself the son of God. And now all of a sudden, all three groups are confronted with the same contextual issue. And all of that comes to bear in this epistle, which then leads to my third comment. Um, The introduction that Louis took us through last week anticipates everything that the epistle is going to start talking about. Stressing Paul's apostleship, 
his, ama his amazement that there's been this defection of the Galatians to some strange gospel, his insistence that the gospel must be preserved in its purity, it must be pre pre preached in its simplicity, and it has to be protected from what Paul calls the troublemakers. That's in chapter 1 and verse 17. It's picked up again in chapter 5. Um, now, there's lots of terms that get thrown around here. Um, this is not really a text about Judaizers. Um, Judaizers were literally Roman-born people who didn't have citizenship. So they decided to become Jews because that would fast-track them to Roman citizenship. We actually have stories of Romans becoming slaves to become Jews so they could become citizens. That was what a Judaizer was. That's not what this, this epistle is talking about. This epistle is talking about Galatians who were obligating people to Judaize to be followers of Jesus. In other words, if you want to follow Jesus, you got to become a good Jew first. You see, they asserted those people, these troublemakers, that Paul had received the gospel from Jerusalem and he'd watered it down, taking out circumcision and table laws. And Paul says very, very clearly, nine, that's not what the gospel's about. I've become a great believer over time that when you study Paul, make sure you scrutinize the end of his letters. Because it's what he says at the end, which becomes really important. He, he does that in Romans, when he says goodbye to all those people and those different house churches. He's trying to show the diversity that was in the church in Rome. He definitely did it in Philippians, when he identified uh, Udaya and Syntyche as the people that were creating conflicts in the church. Uh, he does it in Philemon. He waits to the end of that last letter to ask Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And I think he does the same thing here. He's saying all this move to make these people Judaize is to avoid persecution. And then Paul's going to say, circumcision, no circumcision, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we're the new people of God. And he says, we're the Israel of God. Now, I'll wait for the person who's going to finish off the epistle to deal with chapter six. But get those three things straight, I think, helps when we do our study today. So there's a timeline. Um, there's a social context around Jews, Hellenistic Jews that become Christians, and then pagans who become Christians, and all that's going on in this. But then there's a fundamental issue, and that is Paul is pleading, no, stick to the simplicity and the purity of the gospel. Don't do anything just to avoid persecution. Because it's not circumcision that counts. It's being part of the new people of God. Okay, with that as the background, um, let's follow the text. Now, let's remember in this text that we're looking at today, um, let's follow the natural flow of it. But remember, this is Paul's story. So I want to I look at it as a story. Um, and this story is important. Because if we want to know who God is, we got to look how God acts. There's not a God behind God. So we look at how God acts, and then we know who God is. And this is a beautiful story about how God acts in the life of an amazing man. Okay, the text starts off in verse 10. And the, the paragraph just draws us back 
to chapter 1 and verse 1, where Paul said, this gospel I've got, it's not from men. It's not from one man. In other words, there's no human commission and commissioning that went into my decision to follow Jesus. There's no human authority that did some sort of litigation over me. Paul's amazingly personal in this paragraph. We only get good glimpses into Paul's life in places like 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 12, Philippians 3. And this is just one of four texts where we get a glimpse into his life. And he's starting off with a very important principle. And let me create a, a parenthesis right away in verse 10. My friends, nobody is ever born as a follower of Jesus. You become a follower of Jesus. And Paul is trying to say here, in spite of everything and all the baggage I had, that didn't make me fast track to Jesus. I wasn't born this way. I had to become. And that'll become important when we come to the so what today. Okay, verses 11 and 12, follow the story. I want you to know. Paul's really emphatic in verse 11. And, and, and he's going to say, it's not the favor of people. Um, I was only looking for the favor of God. I wasn't searching to please people. And then in my opinion, in verse 11 and then in verse 12, you actually have the structure that Paul wants to give to the whole book. Notice what he says. In, 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 at the end of verse 11, the gospel I got is not of human origin. Beginning of verse 12, it didn't come from a human source. So if we say that something is not of a human origin, that means that there's not a system of thinking that's man-driven behind what I'm doing. If we say that it's not from a human source, what Paul's saying is, there's no one person, there's no two people, there's not a group of people behind what I'm saying. And so right away, the end of verse 11 and verse 12, he's saying, it's not a human origin. It doesn't have its roots there. It doesn't even have its roots beginning of verse 12 with one person or two people. So then what Paul's going to do is in chapters one and two, he's going to show that the gospel didn't come from a human source. And then in verses three to six, he's going to, in, in chapters three to six, he's going to show that it doesn't have human origins. So 11 and 12 is a marvelous framework for how the book is going to go. So that means today, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the fact that when Paul says that it doesn't come from a human source, this is how he's going to document it. Then when you get to chapter three, then he's going to explain how he didn't get it from a human origin. You see, what Paul's doing in verses 11 and 12 is he's defending his apostleship. It's rooted in God's sovereign, gracious intervention in his life. He owes nothing to the teaching of the other apostles. In fact, he says, I didn't even go to Jerusalem. I went to the desert. I didn't go to Jerusalem a second time until after I'd been 10 years in quote-unquote exile. Although, as we're going to see next week, he freely acknowledges that those other humans authenticated his work in his gospel 
but he's going to say, and we'll look at this in three weeks' time. I even stood Peter up for the way he was acting. So there's no human source to what I'm about. So what's behind? Look at the end of verse 12. This gospel was revealed to me. There was an unveiling. All of a sudden, the lights come on. Ephesians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 2 are going to unpack this even more. But in Galatians, remember what he's going to say in chapter 4 and in verse 4. When the right time came. And now Paul's saying this unveiling is when I began to realize God was revealing what this is all about. So if the principle of verse 10 is you're not born a follower of Jesus, you become one. Now he's saying the way you become one is by revelation. Now, this doesn't mean that it's just a, a private uh, Jesus and me type of thing. No, it, it's, it's an unveiling. You begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And Paul is saying the pieces finally came together. Now, did they come together in Damascus? Did they come together in Arabia? Did they come together during those 10 years in Syria and Cilicia? We don't know. So let's not speculate. But let's just take for granted. Finally, the pieces of the puzzle came together for Paul. And they'll come clearer together for us as we do the book of Galatians together. Okay. With that as the structure. Not a human origin, not a human source, but a revelation. Okay, verses 13 and 14. Follow the storyline. He's now going to talk about his earlier life. There's, there's a couple of things really interesting in these two verses. Um, he, first of all, he talks about the zeal that he had, a zeal that went beyond any of his compatriots of his age. Um, it, it's, it's really fun when you read about Judaism um, at the time of Jesus and of the early church in the time of Paul. Um, Judaism was far from homogenous. Uh, it, 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 had, it, it, it makes Protestantism look unified. Um, and some of these groups of which Paul was one part, the key attribute that they wanted to use to describe themselves was they were zealous. And so Paul's just telling me, telling us, hey, what was in my choice of the form of Judaism that I was a part of? I wanted to be zealous. Of course, the, the, great, uh, the, the great zealot that Paul would have known about was, uh, was John of Maccabees um, and, and everything he was about. That was all about zeal. But there's lots of examples in the Old Testament about prophets who saw the hypocrisy and the heresy of the people. And so they became zealous for God. And Paul was saying, I was one of those zealous people. Um, I actually was persecuting the church of God. So Paul said, I was already beginning to understand that this was an assembly and I was attacking these people. But always keep in mind, Judaism for Jews was not just another philosophy. It wasn't just another quote unquote religion. This was a world and life view. 
This is what we would call today a total social imaginary. It affected every area of life. And so that's why, although we often talk about the conversion of Paul, this was probably more about a journey. This was probably more about a, a progression when the unveiling began to make sense to him. Okay, now, follow the story. Verses 17, uh, 15 to 17. Notice how he starts. Okay, this zealous persecutor, but when God who set me apart, now fo follow what the text says, not in English, but in, in, in the original, who set me apart from the womb, from the stomach of my mother. And my friends, when you read it in terms of what Paul actually says, all Paul is doing here is he's saying, I'm just like Jeremiah. I'm just like Ezekiel. I'm just like Isaiah. I was set apart even before I was born. And, and follow the progression. I was set apart, called by grace, revealed in me as a witness. I didn't consult anybody, and I went right away to Arabia. So, so this passage actually describes this whole process of how he got the unveiling, as I like to say, how he got the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, Paul had no problem locating everything about being set apart from the womb as part of God's grace in his life. Now, it's really interesting. The, the text says that literally that God revealed in me. It wasn't just to me. It was in me. I wonder, okay, this is, a, this is, this is just conjecture on my part. I'm trying to figure out this text has not, does not have a human source. That's chapters one and two. It's revealed in me. I'm wondering if Paul's not preparing us for the ultimate point he wants to make in chapters one and two. When he comes to the end of chapter two and he says, I was crucified with Christ. It's not me who lives anymore, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I lead right now, I lead by the faith of Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And I think Paul's preparing us for the fact that this was revealed in me. And now what I understand is that the real me is the one who was crucified in Christ. Now, let's not get a hold ahead of ourselves, but I think that's where Paul's going to take us. But all of this is to lead to his vocation. He was set apart from the womb, called by grace. God revealed it in him to be a witness. And he, understand, he understands that his vocation was to be a witness. And as we learned on the road to Damascus, a witness to the nations. But so that everybody gets the point, this doesn't have a human source. He says it again. I didn't consult anybody. And I went to Arabia. Um, now, um, where's Arabia, everybody? For a Jew, where was Arabia? That was Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? Moses got 
the Ten Commandments. And I think Paul is saying, I went into the desert like Moses went into the desert. And now I'm coming back with the unveiling. And so verses 15 to 17 are so critical. So then we come to the end of his story, verses 18 to 24. And he does tell us that after those three years in Arabia, he went back to Damascus and now he goes to Jerusalem for his first consultation. And, and he stays with, 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 Cephas, with, with Cephas. Interesting, he calls him Cephas here. He doesn't call him Peter yet. Um, and uh, the sense of the text here is, um, I wanted to get the story right from Cephas. So it, it, it doesn't say I consulted him. It doesn't say I conferred with him. I inquired. And um, he spent some time with James, the half-brother of Jesus. Interesting selection of the two people he wanted to talk about. So after those 15 days, he goes back to Damascus. And this is when I think those events that he talks about, that Luke talks about in Acts 9, where he was confronting the Jews and he got some people really mad at him so that the, the, the disciples had to get him out of Damascus as quick as he could. And he heads off for 10 years in Syria and, Celia, and Cecilia. And this then, at the end of that time, is when Barnabas goes to Tarsus and finds him. And then that sets us up for the next trip, which begins next week in chapter two. Okay, we got a storyline. It's a fascinating storyline. It's got all sorts of insights about Paul, but it's got, I think, two really good insights for you and me. And, and let, let, me, let me end here. This is my, my so what this morning. I think the first thing that this text tells us is that we need a fresh, personal experience, may I say daily, in knowing and following Jesus. I don't think this text could be clearer. You are not born a follower of Jesus. You become a follower of Jesus. And that means we need a fresh, personal, daily experience. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't learn from history. That doesn't mean that we don't learn from people who are trained in the faith. That doesn't mean that we do the Jesus and me thing all by ourselves. No, we need the history. We need the tradition. We need the teaching. But oh, how we need a fresh, daily, personal experience in knowing God and following Jesus. And that just comes out so clearly in this passage about Paul. His faith didn't come from human origins. It comes from God. So my friends, what are you going to do this week to cultivate a fresh daily experience with the living God? Now, second thing, um, but God set me apart from the, from the womb, from the stomach, literally, of my mother. Um, and this is, this is about vocation. And Paul's saying here, I, I was called by grace um, to be a witness, verse 17. Um, it's so unfortunate when I hear people say, oh, I, I, I can't do evangelism. Furthermore, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Um, my friend, 
our vocation is to be witnesses. Uh, Paul says it so very clearly here. Now, granted, Paul was an evangelist. Paul was a church planner. No question about it. But look through all the great callings in the Jewish texts and in the New Testament. They're all about God touching us right from the start, but then giving us a vocation. And that vocation is about being witnesses to who Jesus is and what he has to offer. And as we continue to go through this um, long, long, I don't dare use the word time yet because we don't have time on this pandemic. But as we go through this long, long, my friends, continue to connect with your neighbors. Practice your vocation of witness. I've told many of you other times when I've spoken, this wonderful experience Sandy and I have with our 15 neighbors. It, it, it got even better over Christmas. We've been going door to door, making sure they're doing all right. Of course, showing up with Sandy's Christmas cookies helps. Uh, but um, my friends, we got to squeeze hope, light into people's lives. So take your vocation as witnesses with your neighbors seriously. So, Paul, what a story. But what the story tells us is that the God who acts in his life is the same God who acts in our lives. And he's inviting us to have a fresh daily experience with him. He's calling us to be witnesses. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for, I want to personally thank you for Paul's letter to the Galatians. Thank you for how it has reinvigorated me over the past several years. I'm so grateful. And Lord, I pray that over the course of this series, your spirit would use this book to invigorate my dear friends. And I pray that this morning, this wonderful little story wouldn't just go by as a, oh, isn't that neat? No, that this would be a moment for us to look afresh at how you work in the lives of your people. We want to have that fresh daily experience with you. Because we want you to get all the credit. And we want to be witnesses of who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.